Saul's kingship has been a failure. And the days of his reign are numbered and his disappointing legacy has been sealed for posterity. Before his, he is even dethroned, though, God sends the prophet Samuel on an undercover mission to anoint a new king for Israel. So we step into the story today as Samuel approaches Bethlehem and the family of Jesse. At Samuel's command, Jesse brings all of his sons to be sanctified by Samuel. And when they arrive, Samuel can't take his eyes off of Eliab. Eliab looks presidential, handsome, chiseled jaw, full, thick head of hair, broad shoulders, taller than the rest, a stately, dignified young man destined for royalty. But the voice of God comes to Samuel. Do not look upon his appearance or on the height of his stature. I have rejected him. The Lord does not see as mortals see. The Lord looks on the heart. One by one, Samuel moves down the line of Jesse's sons. Nope, too short. Nope, shoulders too slouched. Nope, nose too big. Never get elected. That nose, nope, eyes too close together, nope, doesn't have that it factor. He comes to the line of these seven freshly scrubbed young men, but nothing is sparking Samuel's discernment. God hasn't inspired him to anoint Eliab, and none of the rest even measure up to this rejected one. Are all these your sons? This is all the sons you have here, Jesse? Samuel says. Jesse replies, well, uh, there there is one more, but but he's keeping me. He's what? He's out there. He's keeping me. Jesse, come again. I'm a a trifle deaf in this ear. You need to speak a little clearly. He's a shepherd. He's out in the fields. He's keeping the sheep. I didn't think it would be possible for you to want him. Samuel commands Jesse to send for this young shepherd. His entourage even refuses to sit until they bring him. And when they return with David, Samuel sees a promising young man. Scripture says he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord says to Samuel that very moment, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. But, Didn't the Lord just spend the better part of a minute five verses ago telling Samuel, do not look on his appearance? The Lord does not see as mortals see. They they look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. How could Samuel be expected to distinguish between two hearts of, of handsome young men without even knowing them? So here's the rub. I believe this contradiction is too obvious. God is inviting us to look behind the curtain of this drama. Yes, both Eliab and David are attractive, 
albeit in different ways. Eliab's height recalls Saul's tall stature. So it could be that our storyteller is trying to teach us that conventionally impressive physical attributes don't equal success. Looking the part doesn't always mean someone is qualified. David, though ruddy and handsome, does not make a royal first impression, apparently. He comes from the lowly fields, from the margins, if you will, from the margins of power, certainly. But David does prove later on that he's up to the task. We remember uh, how he slayed the giant, Goliath, a sharp-shooting young soldier. He's courageous. He's musically gifted. Saul invites him into his court to play for him, not knowing that he's been anointed to be king. He's also a brilliant poet, as we see from the Psalms attributed to David, a Psalm of David, remember? He's a shrewd military leader, as we see from his many conquests, successes on the battlefield. David has a lot of what we call heart, as we say, that kid's got heart. Yet for a time, Saul also had heart. Six chapters ago, we read, quote, God gave Saul a new heart, and all Samuel's signs were fulfilled that day. Then in the sequel to 1 Samuel, popularly titled 2 Samuel, (laughs) we see David commit the shocking act of raping Bathsheba, murdering her husband Uriah, and attempting to cover it all up. So it may be that all this talk of who is and who isn't fit to be king, who is handsome and who is ruddy, is the narrator's way of hinting that though David will be Israel's greatest king, he will disappoint us too. Now the prophet Samuel warned the people about starting this whole business of having kings at all. You may remember in 1 Samuel 8, this This is one of the best passages in all of Scripture. I just love this passage. 1 Samuel 8, Samuel's listening to the people talk about how they want a king so they can be powerful like the other nations because the other nations have kings, and so they must have a king too so that they can be powerful like the other nations. And Samuel's just listening to them drone on and on about, we want a king. And then he says, all right, you want a king? I'll give you a king. But here's what's going to happen. He's going to take your children and put them in the military. He's going to have you refashioning your favorite plowshares into swords. He's going to take the best land. And he's going to take the best of your livestock. And he's going to subject you to those TurboTax commercials. (laughs) You're going to be trying to watch the NCAA tournament. But every commercial is going to be TurboTax commercial. And then from then on, throughout 1st and 2nd Samuel, the narrator is uneasy about kingship. The whole time we're talking about kings, and they rise and they fall, they, they impress us, but then they disappoint us in monumental fashion. I believe 1st Samuel may even be a, a clever argument against kingship. So why does this text then appear now in this time in the church year? I've puzzled over this for months now. What is this doing here in Lent of all places? 
couldn't we have put this somewhere in like the summer Sundays? We could preach on 1 Samuel like in July or something. Why is it, why is it in the season of Lent? Why all this political talk of anointing kings for Israel thousands of years ago? And what has any of this to do with us? I wonder if it has everything to do with God preparing us to welcome a disappointing king. God judging our judgment about who deserves to wield power. Both Saul and David remind us that even when we anoint and celebrate the finest, handsomest people to lead us, that they will fall short of God's dream. They will disappoint us. I remember hearing the refreshing story of a politician in West Virginia. Stephen Smith was running for governor in, in 2020, uh, not to exercise partisan power, he said, but he wanted to return power to the disinherited people of West Virginia. And at one rally, there was an elder man there said he was so inspired to come here, this new, young, handsome candidate, uh, that he, he, he came, he, he hadn't been to a rally like this or a political event since 1960, he said, because he, this new fellow reminded him of John F. Kennedy. That was the last time he went to anything like this. And he had compared Smith to the charismatic Kennedy, and then Smith stunned the room by saying this, one thing I can tell you is I will disappoint you. He lost in the primary. I remember uh, when, when I came here, I was talking with uh, someone came up to me, approached me, and they said, you know, I just want you to know, I, I think you're going to do a great job, but I just want to tell you, uh, I, I've hoped in pastors before. But I had a pastor disappoint me and break my heart once upon a time many years ago. And so I decided back then that I wasn't going to hope in the pastor anymore. My only hope was going to be in God. And you know how that made me feel? Relieved. <laughs> so relieved. Why is this here in Lent? I believe the scriptures point to this story now in order to prepare us for the cross. First Samuel helps set the stage for an unsettling realization to come over all of us. That the most disappointing man that ever lived was the only one who could save us and did. Do you remember how disappointing Jesus was? At first, even before he was born, the scriptures prophesied he would have no comely appearance, no physical attributes that we should desire him. He disappointed John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist thought he was going to be the one to save Israel, restore him, uh, Israel to the kind of Davidic majesty, King David all over again. But no, Jesus, uh, he even sent reporters to Jesus. Are you the one? Are we supposed to wait for another? Jesus disappointed Peter. He kept telling the disciples, I'm going uh, to be arrested and, and I'm going to suffer at the hands of the leaders. I'm going to be crucified. Peter said, no way. 
that's not going to happen to you. And Jesus politely responded, get behind me, Satan. Jesus ran a failing campaign as a public speaker, started strong, multitudes. But then the people kept leaving. And the crowd got smaller and smaller. Uh, he was perhaps most remembered as a public speaker for overturning the tables in the temple and publicly shaming the most elite religious leaders. Woe to you, religious leaders, hypocrites, he said, in public. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are, are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. That'll get you a loss in the primary. He disappointed those watching him from the cross. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He disappointed one of those crucified with him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. He even disappointed people, people after he was raised from the dead. Cleopas and his partner are walking to Emmaus, speaking with Jesus. They don't know he's Jesus. They're walking beside him. They haven't recognized his face or his voice. We had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Ah. In this time of great disappointment, disappointments in leaders and politicians and pastors, disappointment in our communities, disappointment in ourselves, I find only the greatest hope that the most disappointing person that ever lived exposes our judgment about who is and who is not disappointing, who has come to save us, save us from our sins and save us from our own miscues and judgments and mischaracterizations. I read the news now. It's disappointing. But I remember 10 years ago, I was reading the news. It was disappointing. I remember 10 years before that, I was reading the news. It was so disappointing. But all along the way, encounters with the risen Christ through the people and the places where Jesus said he would be. And lift up my heart. And lift up yours. Where did Jesus say we could find our hope on the margins with the poor, with the disinherited, and with the disenfranchised. In the places where people suffer, in the places where disappointment hovers over people's minds and hearts like a cloud, and yet Christ is there. And so we find in this suffering that it produces endurance and that this endurance produces character and that this character produces hope and this hope does not disappoint us. He has a name. His name is Jesus. He is alive and he is with us. Thanks be to God.